Hello friends, it's Podrick here. This is a Poetry Unbound Extra. It's a conversation between myself and Sasha Takshablula Point. We do this from time to time, having a conversation with a poet whose work we're featuring on Poetry Unbound. And I was delighted to have a conversation with her. She was in a studio in Seattle and I was in a studio in New York City. Her debut book, Rose Quartz, is just out from Milkweed Editions and it is damn brilliant. Thanks for listening in, and I know you'll enjoy this conversation. We'll start by hearing Sasha Takshablula Point read her poem that we feature in Poetry Unbound. The poem is called Blue. Blue. I emerge from our yellow linoleum bathroom, Blue. At one end of our single wide trailer, and I have the length of narrow hallway to consider before reaching the living room, Blue. Blue, and I know my mother is furious. You look ridiculous, it's all she says, and I do. I had torn the pages from a magazine, lined my bedroom floor with them and studied. Those punk rock spiked hair, white teeth, high fashion, popped collar, leather studded glossy photos strewn across my small space like a spread of tarot cards, telling me a future I would never get to. Not out here, not in the white trailer, rusting amber, thick of trees, stretch of reservation, of highway that stood between me and whatever else was out there. Record stores, the mall, parking lots where kids were skateboarding and smoking pot, probably. Kids with boomboxes and bottles of beer. Out there were beaches with bands playing on them. And these faces, these shining faces, with pink, green, purple, and blue hair. Blue. I could get that, at least. I could mix 17 packets of blue raspberry Kool-Aid with a little water, and I could get that. It was alchemy. It was potion-making. But no one told me about the bleach, about my dark hair needing to lift, to lighten, in order to get that blue. No one told me that the mess of Kool-Aid would only run down my scalp, my face, my neck, would stain me blue. Blue is what you taste like, he says, still holding me on the twin bed. In the glow of dawn, my teenage curiosity has pushed me to ask, what does my body taste like to you? His fingers travel from neck to navel, breath on my thigh, and here in our sacred space, he answers simply, blue. You taste blue. And I wonder if what he means is sad. You taste sad. Taksha blue. The name is given to me when I am three. To understand it, my child brain has to break it apart. Taksha blue. Talk, as in talking, as in to tell as in story, Shah as in the second syllable of my English name, as in half of me, blue as in the taste of me, blue as in sad. My grandmother was Taksha Blue before me, and now I am Taksha Blue too. It's so good to hear you read that one out, Sasha. Um, I'm, I'm curious if it's okay for me to launch into some questions. 
I counted up the amount of times that the word blue is heard. Obviously, it, it comes across, you know, from your name and it comes across from the color blue that's being referred to. But it's 17 times and 18 then if you take the, the title. And after a while, the word blue or the sound blue just begins to function in a way as a fill in for other things, um, for identity, for experience, for yearning, for wanting to be somewhere else, for wanting to grow up, for the encounter with a lover, uh, for the connection with family. It just seems like it's a doorway, this sound, to hold it all together. Is that how you see the word blue working in the poem? It's interesting. Um, like, I hadn't thought of it that way so specifically, but I think that there's absolutely something going on with the repetition and the mm. sound in blue. I think one of my earliest memories of learning my traditional name, my Skagit name, when my family was trying to teach it to me, they were like, well, you carry grandma's name, and here's how you pronounce it. The earliest memory I have is them, you know, trying to get me to say Taksha Blue, mm -hmm. and they broke it down for me in that way and saying, like, you know, talk. Grandma talks a lot. She talks you blue. <laughs> and so this, like, sort of sound reference to blue, like, just stayed with me through my whole life. And then I remember the coincidence of, you know, a partner telling me, oh, blue, and then immediately connecting it to my name. And then, of course, all of the like connotations that blue has in so many different things, like emotional, like interpretations of blue are sad, like our water, water represents emotion. Like they're so like blue is so loaded for me. Mm. But that original memory is absolutely them kind of telling me phonetically how to say our traditional name. And that is really at the heart of the poem, I think. Yeah. Uh, how did grandma feel about being referred to as somebody who talks a lot? <laughs> she liked it. She ate it up. She was like, I know. And everybody listens. <laughs> As she talks some more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you were being taught your Skagit name. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah. It's funny, too, because when, you know, people have met me throughout my life or they ask, you know, oh, is Taksha Blue your middle name? And I said, no, it's our mm -hmm. it's our Skagit name, our traditional name. And so in Coast Salish culture, we have... Um, naming ceremonies. And my naming ceremony happened when I was three. And it's an important part of our culture to be gifted a name. And it's a big celebration. There's storytelling. There's a salmon feast. Um, and this idea of passing down a name to someone is strong in our culture. Like I have people who different elders or, or folks I will meet in the community that only call me Taksha Blue. And it's like, you know, a sense of pride and empowerment to carry her name. Yeah. And the name that somebody's given, a Skagit name, is it normally something to do with somebody else in the family or can it go outside that too? It's, it depends. I think that I'm the only one in our family that has is a namesake. In other um, cases, like my mom, my brother, my cousins, they were just given names by an elder, um, mm -hmm. like chosen names. But I think I was the first in our family to actually carry a legacy name. Yeah. <laughs> and was that an invitation into talking a lot? <laughs> yeah, right. I think that, well, it was, there was a lot of pressure when I was younger too, where you know, at family gatherings and whatnot, she'd say, well, you're my namesake. You're going to do important things. And when you're like 14 with a shaved head and a Walkman just trying to like go to the punk show, you're like, yeah, yeah, grandma, you know, like, sure. Like, I, I feel far from doing anything important. But she'd always remind me. It was it was a bit stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing it all in front of me, shaved head and a Walkman. Amazing. <laughs> there are so many questions I, I've got about like, 
the, the idea of a name. So many poets write poems about the experience of their name, getting it, changing it, the way that it lives in them, their experience of their name. And in a way, in as much as the word blue is a word that you can trace your life through, your name, one's name, is a doorway into who am I? And this poem also does seem to be asking the question of identity of self, identity of culture, identity of community and change. And so you've gathered all of that in it. You know, there's that painful line telling me a future I would never get to. There seems to be this question about who can I be? Do I want to be someone different? Do I want a different future? Would that be accessible to me? That there's the personal experience of that question as well as the cultural experience. And all of that seems to be linked to the sound blue that you hold together. Could you talk about the search for self, both individually as well as culturally? Yeah, I love that you brought up name in general and identity. And like, I think that there's this duality in in my own identity as a Coast Salish woman, as a mixed heritage woman, like having my English name and doing this sort of research, you know, and talking to my mom about why my first name, you know, was chosen. And in discovering that I was named after this doll was really strange to me. Mm. And my mom had a doll when she was a child, like this beloved little girl doll with a big Sasha imprint on the back. I think it was the name of the company. Mm -hmm. And so she named me after this doll. And I feel like there was always this sort of duality in me with like dolls to me are very passive and still Mm. and kind of the opposite of empowerment. And these kind of cute, quiet statue things versus my Skagit name, which is Taksha Blue, which, you know, following in the footsteps of our grandmother, like she was this fierce, amazing Coast Salish storyteller and language uh, revitalization activist and just a total badass. And so this sort of conflict existed within me growing up around like my English name, that person, and then also like stepping into the power of this name that was handed down to me. Mm -hmm. And like growing up in Swinomish, I did live way out in the woods north of Seattle, in the middle of nowhere, really, like closer to Canada. And when you're young, I think, at least for me, I was really enamored with all things in the city, the music Mm -hmm. scene, the sort of like hustle and bustle of all of that stuff, especially because it was so different than Mm. just vast nothingness or, you know, now I look back on it as an adult as like, that was gorgeous. I lived in like a temperate rainforest. (laughs) But at the time, all I wanted to do was get away. And to Mm. me, that also represents that conflict of identity, like, you know, being on the reservation, wanting more and wanting to go see bands play and wanting to be in the heart of a city. And then kind of growing up and getting there and coming back to my culture and community and realizing that there was a lot of beauty there as well. Yeah. What's the etymology of Taksha Blue? Or is there an indicated meaning? Or You know, that's also, some folks will ask me, uh, and no, no shade, but some folks will be like, oh, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Like they're expecting me to say, oh, it means like, like a woman who runs with wolves or swims mm-hmm. with orcas. I'm like, our names don't mean anything, or okay. they don't mean something directly like that. Mm. Our grandma received her name when she was about my age. She was young, and she was with her mom and grandmother and some elders, and an elder was kind of scolding her and just out of nowhere called her Taksha Blue in this way. It was like, Taksha Blue, you just need to sit down or something. And that was the first, mm. like, we've traced it back to that, of like this this elder just, kind of shouted out to her Taksha Blue and gave her that name. Mm. And that's been given on to you. You you said that she was a language revitalization Mm -hmm. person as well as a a storyteller. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious about the language revitalization work that she did. 
Yeah. So she worked with a linguist in the 60s and 70s to put together uh, when my when she was a young woman, she started to notice that the last fluent speaking elders in her community were were passing on and um, with it, you know, taking the language and she made this decision to preserve it. And mm-hmm. so she, with help from other um, tribal members, like there are different recordings, but she linked up with this linguist, I think from the University of Washington, and went around with a tape recorder and recorded elders um, and recorded their stories and recorded the language and worked to put together the first Lashutsi dictionary and created like a written alphabet for the language. So now we have like full immersion classes mm-hmm. and my nephews and nieces, you know, my these young kids in our family will come up to me and speak fluent Lashutzid and like just phrases and everything. And it's so beautiful and so incredible to see, you know, being a woman in my 30s and being like, I don't know how to fluently speak our language. I'm learning. And mm. it's far more difficult when you're older, I think, to grasp a language. But it's so cool to see my six-year-old nephew just like rattle off Lashutzid phrases. Um, And that's so much to do with the work she did, you know, creating the alphabet, creating the written language. What an extraordinary legacy she gave. And that's a legacy too, obviously, that stands up in terms of language eradication and, you know, the eradication in policy that, you know, people have been put through that she then was resisting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've heard some other people, and I mean, I'm Irish, and the question about the Irish language and the deliberate policies over years of colonization there too. You know, if we have a phrase, Tirgantanga, Tirgananam, a land without a language is a land without a soul. Mm. And the way in which policies to reduce the capacity of a community for their own self-organization often begin by decimating language. And there can be a sense of exile from your own language when you're learning it in your own country, on your own land, like where the language is from and where it's been spoken for centuries upon centuries to suddenly be in a situation like you describe where you're thinking, I'm learning it in my 30s. There's grief that comes with that, as well as empowerment. Absolutely. And I think um, the phrase you just shared reminds me, there's a documentary where in an interview, our grandmother says, without language, there can be no culture. And mm. like it just reminds me of that, like mm. um, having the colonizer come in and erase this language. I mean, it is a cultural erasure. It's erasing part of who we are as a people and our teachings, like our stories and the Coast Salish legends I heard growing up. Uh, what's the what's the state of language preservation now? I mean, it sounds like there's some flourishing as you speak about your nephews and nieces. Yeah, it's growing. It's incredible. There's so many full immersion programs. Mm. There's so much availability, like as far as you can get online and go to, I think it's the Tulalip website where they have like interactive language lessons, even just online. And it's so beautiful. Um, Another example, too, at the Rose Quartz book launch, it was really beautiful. Some folks came out from the community that I grew up in, up in Swinomish. And, you know, as we're chatting and talking, like, and signing books and stuff, they would thank me in Lashutzid. And so I got to, like, hear, like, this conversational, like, Lashutzid just kind of happening. And it was really beautiful. I'm out with my mom sometimes. We were at a, a native arts market a while back, and she greeted all her friends, like, speaking fluent Lashutzid. And so it, I feel like when my grandmother started the Lashutzid language revitalization, there was a handful of speakers, and now there's young people. There's videos online of people speaking Lashutzid. It was really amazing 
a while back when I was performing with a band to get up and do spoken word and practice and use some Lachutzi phrases in our music. That was really empowering. So I feel like it's not as like non-existent as it was before. Wonderful. I wanted to go back to the poem. I was struck by some references um, in the poem that I was curious about. You know, you, you spoke about those punk rock spiked hair, white teeth. And then a couple of lines later, you're talking about the white trailer. And then later on about the bleach, my dark hair and needing to lift to lighten. So mm -hmm. I'm looking at white and white and bleach and lighten and seeing those words separate from the particular lines they're in where they're just describing something particular. But there is an experience that's being put across here, too, in terms of the repetition of white and light and bleach, which seems to me to be about asking for accountability and asking for justice. Is that what's happening in those lines? Yeah, absolutely. That's part of it. I think part of it is calling out and calling attention to the the way I grew up on the reservation, I think, isn't unique. I think a lot of reservations across the country suffer the same issues of poverty. And there's this, you know, for a time we had no running water power while we were trying to get situated. And especially um, Swinomish being right across the channel from this sort of postcard picturesque town called Laconner, which was predominantly white, if not all the way white, mm -hmm. with like kite shops and ice cream shops and saltwater taffy, you know, you know the mm -hmm. type, that kind yeah. of quaint waterfront mm -hmm. town where you can buy like watercolors of herons or whatever. It was like that right up, like scooted mm -hmm. next to the reservation. And I always found that really disturbing. It like, even as a child, confused me and kind of made me question things as to be like, wait a minute. And then of course, as I grew older and, and learned more about the history of the land and the settlers coming to occupy our land, being like, wait a minute, this is so unfair. And I yeah. think that that comes up in my poetry again and again, because it's something that I wrestled with my whole life of kind of growing up in the poverty that comes with a reservation and then that juxtaposition of wealth right across the water. So yeah, that's that's an element. Mm. But also there's like my own like a personal identity thing, like sort of conflict going on too, because growing up in Swinomish, my mom is Coast Salish, my bio dad is white, and so I am mixed heritage. I'm I'm half native and didn't look like my siblings. We had a very mixed family. Mm. And didn't look like a lot of the other kids on the res. And so I was very confused as a young child <laughs> as being like, wait a minute. And I remember the kids in LaConnor, we were all sort of funneled into elementary school across the water. There was no tribal school on the reservation. We all had to attend the same small school. And really young, I learned that the white kids were kind of mean to me. And then some of the kids on the res that weren't my immediate family were kind of mean to me. And it was this sort of realization that I was too Indian for the white kids and too white for the Indian kids. And I was like, where do I belong? And so mm -hmm. I think that that shows up a lot in this poem as well, or in a lot of my poems too, mm -hmm. but specifically in this one, kind of being enamored with these magazines in the 90s that showed like edgy punk kids and they were really fashionable and really cool. And I was like, oh, I want to be that. But then kind of questioning, but I also don't look like that. I'm not them, but I'm mm -hmm. also not these other kids as well. 
And did you really mix 17 packets of blue raspberry Kool-Aid? I did. I did. I made a mess of our crappy little bathtub. I remember my family was going out to the movies that night, and they made me stay home because oh. they were so angry. They were like, what have you done? Like, my whole face, and my hair is dark, dark brown. It's, like, basically black. And so none of it showed up in my hair. All of it ran down my face and stained it, like, no matter how much I scrubbed. And I remember my parents just looking at me and being like, you're staying home tonight, and you're scrubbing the bathtub. And then nobody could have their blue raspberry Kool-Aid either. Yeah, my my siblings were also super bummed. They were like, what's the best flavor? (laughs) 17 packets (laughs) is a lot. But I think, too, even in sharing that experience was, in a way, talking about Because I had heard from kids in school that, oh, you can just dye your hair with Kool-Aid and it stains it. Of course, I didn't really put it together that the kids who were sharing this were all blonde. Mm. (laughs) And I didn't, you know, put that together. There's a way in a variety of poems throughout the book where you speak about sex, speak about the exchange of it in terms of consent, the delight of it. And then in this here, too, there's this erotic exchange. And in it, there's this experience of how it is that you're experienced by somebody else. Blue, you taste blue. I'm interested in how it is that you use sex throughout your poetry and especially here in this one. Yeah, I think the sort of reference to this early, you know, kind of childhood love and intimate experience was a way to call out that this was one of the first and few experiences of my youth that was actually safe. And I think with this person who was a very safe person and careful with me and respectful and really, you know, delicate with me. And I think that in that brief exchange, his even ability to like call that out and speak to that rather than what other teenage boys might have done or said, I think just spoke so intensely about his character and how that was really important for me. Like, yes, it was also a way to talk about sadness and Mm. trauma, but it was also saying something about my encounter with him in general, being like, this is a safe and kind of nurturing person, even though it is a teenage boy. Yeah. To be in the situation to trust someone enough to say, what does my body taste like to you? That indicates a very safe experience because Mm -hmm. you can only offer a question like that in the hope and the expectation that you're already in in an encounter where it'll be answered. Right. And, you know, speaking of different areas where it shows up, there's a very similar scene that comes up in a poem that takes place years and years later as an adult on tour with my ex-husband. I think we're in Sweden. And I was like, oh, this is a very similar experience, but the tone is so much different. The tone is sort of like foreboding and ominous. Like, it's like this brief moment of intimacy and kind of wildness. I think we're literally above rafters over a stage somewhere, you know, being kind of wild. But it's so interesting to me that I caught it where I was like, oh, this is the same kind of intimate moment, but in such a different tone, because yeah. the the purpose of that poem was to kind of set up what was to come in that relationship sort of dissolving. Hmm. When did you begin to turn to poetry, Sasha? I have a very, uh, I dare say, cliched answer. People are like, oh, typical. And so I was like, maybe I should stop saying that, but it's honest. I'm um, curious where it goes. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a teenager going to Emerson Alternative High School, like one town over from the reservation, obviously there was no alternative high school for bad teenagers in LaConnor, Washington. So (laughs) I had to go a half hour away. Um, But I had this incredible English teacher and she was super cool. And 
I think she gave me a copy of Girl Interrupted. I was mm. in like ninth grade and she was like, you're going to love this. It's the same place that Sylvia Plath stayed at. And she introduced me to Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. And I was, you know, this clove smoking little goth teenager. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever and kind of fell into that world in a really heavy way. And it was also during a really tricky time in my life where I was spending a lot of time hitchhiking and running away from home. Mm-hmm. And one of my first, um, I had managed to scrape together enough for a Greyhound bus ticket. And I was on the bus ride from uh, Skagit Valley to Seattle, which was probably like an hour. And halfway through the ride, I started having this, what I know now is an intense panic attack. And I didn't know that at the time. I started kind of freaking out and I didn't know what to do. And I just started tearing through my backpack and looking for something to write with. And all I could think of was this quote from Sylvia Plath that I had learned because of this cool English teacher, which was, I write because there's a voice inside me that will not be still. Mm. And I tore through my backpack and like found a napkin and a pen and just wrote on every single inch of that napkin. And it sort of calmed me down for the rest of that Greyhound bus ride. And I think that was when poetry became the thing. Uh, I mean, there's nothing typical about that. It's extraordinary. It's very moving to hear it. Oh, thank you. I feel people kind of roll their eyes and go, oh, you liked the confessionals, like big shocker. Yeah. I find that to be a, a very limited imagination about what the I in a poem can do. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Who else did you read then? You mentioned Sylvia Plath. Who else have you turned to? Oh, well then, fast forward years later when I was attending the Institute of American Indian Arts. and uh, in Santa Fe. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into creative writing or studio arts. But I think it was my sophomore year at IAI, and they sent me and another student to this really cool poetry program. They had a scholarship for students to go to the poetry program in Idlewild, California. Mm. And I hadn't really engaged with poetry since teenagehood, you know, so I'd had a big break from it, but went to this this poetry workshop in California and had a workshop led by Matthew Dickman, the mm. Portland-based poet. Yeah. And Within like two minutes of his welcome and lecture, I was just totally taken, was like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, he was so great and turned me on to a lot of other poets. And just now I finished, I think, a book that I'm so obsessed with right now, um, Tay Tibble's Pocahontas. Uh-huh. She's a Maori poet. I and know, yeah. An incredible human. Yeah. Um, so I also love the work of Tommy Pico. Obviously, I'm really drawn to indigenous poetry yeah. and especially indigenous poets like Tay, like Tommy, who are writing their, you know, of course, it's an indigenous experience. It's poetry through an indigenous lens, but they're not afraid to write about like things that are unexpected. Yeah. And I think that that's really important. So yeah, I gravitate sure. towards that work. I'm like really loving Tay's work. Yeah, yeah Tay's brilliant. Yes. I wonder if you'd mind if we could talk um, very briefly about the one of the brother poems, What He Should Have Had. Oh, right. Um, it's on page 31. Thank you. You are so much <laughs> faster than me. <laughs> Partly it's my own curiosity, quite aside from Poetry Unbound, about poems that speak to experiences of conflict. And I love the subtlety of this poem and the complexity of it. Thank you. Mm. I'd be fascinated to hear you read it. And then I have a question or two, but... Yeah. What he should have had. It's not fair 
says my brother, talking at me over his pint glass. I belong on a yacht. We had that, you know. We had a yacht. We never had a yacht. You mean one of Mom's boyfriends did. I poke at the red-filmed ice of my spent Bloody Mary. I order another as my brother continues his story of what we should have had. All that shit, he says. Those rich guys, those condos in the city. But she moved us to Swinomish. At this, there is a long sigh, and I roll another beer in his fist, and he drinks it angrily. And I am noticing how handsome my brother is. His pitch-colored hair, his jaw, his big smile, how he looks like Superman, like Freddie Prince Jr. in some romantic comedy made for teenagers in the 90s. Driving back up the coast to our ancestral home, I sleep in the woods, send him pictures of whales and a roadside motel we stayed in as kids. But he is busy with his list of all the things we should have had. He is writing them down and marking them off. When we say goodbye, I watch my older brother try not to cry. I tell him to be less angry. But it's too late. My brother has already pulled out his boning knife. Look what happened to you. He repeats it. He carves a fish-shaped hole right into me. Look what happened to you. Where that poem ends is extraordinary, Sasha. I'm fascinated by the ending. I've got lots of other questions about what goes on through the artistry of the poem, but it's that ending is so interesting. Mm. Could you talk about the ending? Yeah, I think that there's something intuitive, you know, when we're trying to make sense of a feeling or make sense of something hard. And this particular memory with my brother is one of the hardest memories and one of the last memories I have with him. And I think that there's sort of this urge to, like, make sense of it. I think that even if I'd wanted to explain it and unpack it further, it's almost too delicate and mm. too hard. And mm. so all I could really end with is, I think, what was at the heart of what he was saying in that moment, right? Um mm. I wish I had more of, like, a craft-based, like, oh, of course, like, yeah. response, but it's so rooted in emotion for me and, yeah. and sort of processing one of the last conversations I've had with him that I really couldn't see it ending on any other. Yeah. And that fish-shaped hole. Yeah, and I think that fish obviously come up a lot in my mm -hmm. writing, in my poems, my yeah. essays. But to see my brother kind of, and this goes back to... Uh, because my brother is also uh, Coast Salish mm -hmm. and sort of denying his culture and uh, refusing to come back to the community, to come back to um, family. To me, he's denying what feeds us as Coast Salish yeah. people. And fish, salmon is a sacred resource. And so all I could think about is how he was denying himself that and then trying to push that on me, like taking the sustenance out and taking this nurturing and sacred resource away from, I don't know if that makes sense, but... It makes complete sense. Yeah. I'm curious how you'd finish that sentence, though. Take this nurturing resource away from... Well, I think that in his way, he, you know, had come to terms with that he was walking away from it. And then mm -hmm. by kind of asking me to do the same, by like carving a fish-shaped hole in me, trying to ask me to walk away from it as well, which mm -hmm. I think, I don't know if I go into in the poem enough for readers to understand that part of it, but it was 
very much him kind of saying, it's because of our nativeness that bad things have happened to us. And so in his statement, I think he was really trying to take that sort of sacred resource and that part of my identity away. Hmm. The poem's very intelligent about anger and anger that happens in the context of people who love each other. You know, even the easy way where you're saying, I notice how handsome my brother is, you know, he's not demonized in this way, that there is this exchange between the two of you. And then you're texting in pictures later on, you know, Wales and Roadside Motel, you stayed in his kids. I find it a poem that's subtle about the experience of anger and resentment between people who are our siblings and who clearly have intimacy and love and are spending time with each other. Mm-hmm. How, how how did you feel guided into that extraordinary intuitive capacity to do that in the poem? <laughs> I think with this particular poem, like it's so simple, it's so autobiographical, where my brother pulling away and disappearing from the family as he had and and did, all I could do was reach out and reach out and reach out. I used to call him. And I sent him photos, sent him text messages over and over. And I think when someone is pulling away from you, um, instead of being angry, because I wanted to, I wanted to scream at him and tell him he was being a coward and tell him all these things and fight. But when someone's just pulling away and so actively disappearing from your life, that's the wrong thing to do, right? I just wanted to show him that I was here and that I was his sister and that I still exist. And I was kind of just like, sending these messages and this love out into a void because he never responded to the text. He never mm-hmm. called me back after that that last meeting. But um, but yeah, it was just very autobiographical of like, this is what I'm doing on this road trip by myself, driving back up the coast and trying to like kind of reach out to him and reach back for him. I find myself thinking about ways within which the title can go in multiple directions, what he should have had. You know, he's talking about what he wanted to have had in the exchange between the two of you. But then there's ways in which you're looking at his life in a broader context and thinking what he should have had, you know, mm-hmm. life <laughs> and a sense of change and opportunity as well. Right. We have like the sort of list of material things that he believes he should have had. You know, he's Mm. quite angry about it. But then to end on the image of the fish, there's a lot of compassion for my brother in this poem. And um, in, I think, all of the brother poems. But Mm. this one particularly with what he should have had that is in direct conversation with the last line of this idea of a fish-shaped hole in us as Coast Salish people. That's devastating. And so in a way, I'm trying to say that I wish my brother didn't have that. Like, I wish mm. he he didn't have that sort of deficiency in him, that he was so angry that he's sort of denying his identity as a Coast Salish man. Yeah. Um, throughout the book, I, I really grew to like him. I, I really appreciated when he turned up. and And that's because... You like him, and that comes across so clearly in the relationship because there's warmth. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's good to hear. Mm. <laughs> he is a likable. He was a likable brother. <laughs> and that my last question was: What's next? Are you working on some new stuff, or um, are you continuing to do loads of promo of, of rose quartz? Yeah, I am working on new poems. Right now, they seem to all be very beachy. <laughs> I think that it's an interesting thing to move away from the Rose Quartz poem, which I just kind of fell into this world of like story and fairy tale and and kind of spells and magic and to move through, I think, all of the grief and 
like trauma that is also in rose quartz yeah. and to move away from that and all of my poems lately have been about the ocean and also probably about grief but also joy mm-hmm. um and then how i think i think it's important to have poems that have joy in it like yeah, at a okay. recent reading my mom and dad came and my dad doesn't often come to my readings and he's very open and honest about that he's like sometimes it's really hard as mm-hmm. You know, your dad is the dad who raised you to sit in the audience and hear some of this. And I was like, valid. That's so totally valid. You never have to come to another reading if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. And he came to a reading where I read a couple of the new poems. And he came up and he was like, that was my favorite poem I've ever heard, mm-hmm. this new poem. And I thought it was kind of a love poem or a poem about joy, but it was also pretty dark. I think I can't avoid that. Mm-hmm. But he was like, no, that's what was so special about it. And I just, like, burst into tears in public. I was like, my dad liked a poem. That's so amazing. (laughs) And I think that it's impossible to, you know, in writing poems that are heavy and, like, I'll set out to write, like, a love poem. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. falling in love with a surfer. I'm going to write a poem about that. That's so cool. And then all of a sudden it, like, in considering joy and sitting by the ocean, how can you not consider microplastics and, like, rising, like, water levels, and then all of a sudden this poem about joy and love becomes something bigger. And I'm writing some beach poems, some <laughs> surf poems, and some yeah. poems about the end of the world. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, yes, the weight and the levity together, I think, is often very important in, in poetry. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I mean, actually, coming back to what he should have had, there is such levity in that. You know, there's the kind of he said, she said nature of it that tying into those dialogue dialectic poems. You know, we never had a yacht. You mean one of mom's boyfriends did. I poke, you know, you're poking at the Bloody Mary, but you're also poking at him in a certain (laughs) sense in that kind of intimate knowledge of each other to say that's not true or that's not the way I see it. In the midst of that poem, which is filled with tenderness and grief about what's impending, there, there is levity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Sasha, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I love the the artistry of skill in the the crafting of the poems, as well as what the poems point to through their skill and craft and form. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to read the poems. <laughs> My pleasure, of course. I'll be um, continuing to keep an eye out for anything you publish. Awesome. Thank you so much. This podcast is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.